Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. In a few days, the United States will hold elections during one of the most challenging times in its history. We're going to talk about that election and we're going to talk about the reliability of polling with Republican pollster Rob Autry. But first, let's take a look at the context. The whole world consumed by the COVID epidemic is now going to be watching as President Trump fights for re-election against political veteran Joe Biden. Voters are not just choosing between parties and personalities and candidates, but between two completely different worldviews. That's absolutely right, Peter, because at stake is the future of the United States as a geopolitical player and as an economic engine and as a custodian of global security. And really, the question remains of whether the U.S. will manage to return to its position of leadership when the global power dynamics have changed and other players now have really more influential voices. So even a Biden presidency that people have a lot of hopes on um, internationally, despite its best intentions, Tensions to restore multilateral ties and diplomatic leadership and military projection will also be consumed with executing a very complicated COVID response and tending to the pandemic's economic aftershocks. So the next president will also contend with a tragically divided country and very, very deep racial scars. So, I mean, nobody's ever accused me of being non-dramatic, but I, I really do think that this is the most important election in the United States since 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was elected and the stage was set for the Civil War. And and but whatever comes next, Mooney, the U.S. is now, it's a nation in stasis and drift where gridlock and obstructionism and hostility have paralyzed institution, mistrust and resentment are everywhere and families are just bitterly divided. It, it's a It's a hard time to be hopeful. So here we are, Peter, in the middle of policy differences and bitter attacks between candidates. Polls are showing a significant advantage for the Democratic Party, not only in the popular vote, but also in key swing states and some Senate races. And looking at the numbers, and they fluctuate a little week to week, but they've been pretty stable. Joe Biden beats President Trump by around 8 to 12 points nationally. And he has a solid edge of 7 to 8 points in battleground states that like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all the hot spots from last election, and a more narrow lead of the crucial states like Florida, where Biden leads by about 4. So the numbers point out to Biden kind of eking out a victory in more conservative states even, like Arizona and Georgia. So if polls are to be trusted... Joe Biden will be the country's 46th president and both the Senate and House will become Democratic. Yeah, but I mean, I think the key question here is what you just said and, you know, um, uh, like a second ago, which <laughs> if polls are to be right. trusted. And, and the question is, you know, can polls be trusted because they were calamitously wrong uh, at the you know, at the end of 2016, do polls really record the views of different groups in in a correct manner? For example, let me give you an example. Much has been written about the Latino vote, but is the Latino vote a demographic, you know, wall? Is it all? Is it is it really something that exists? You know, Latinos are not monolithic. If you think of Catholic, family oriented, older, wealthy Cubans from South Florida. They can't be compared to struggling young Central Americans who are fleeing violence and looking to make a living. If you look at Texas Latinos or California Latinos or Arizona Latinos, most of them of Mexican origin who make up 62% of the U.S. Hispanic population, they're different again. And most worrying 
are, are there. Most of them are worrying about health care and employment, almost like everybody else. Another issue which just keeps coming up again and again is the urban rural divide. Does that really exist? Do rural Iowa voters vote like Tennessee I, rural voters? Do do urban voters in Chicago vote the same as urban voters in Dallas? And finally, this thing that we keep seeing in polls now, which is this massive gender gap. The women's vote was so misunderstood in 2016 is now being broken down geographically by education and age and income. Is that the right way to break down the women's vote? Or it seems like the definitions of traditional polls, which break down people only by demographics, is now just not functioning anymore. So here we are, right, in this today's podcast. And these are the questions we're going to ask today. First, what are polls telling us about what voters are thinking and feeling? And further, of course, the question of whether polls can be trusted. And more specifically, we will dig into the issues that concern Americans, the accuracy of these year, of this year's polling. And, and then, of course, into the PTSD that the 2016 results created among the public after I, nearly... I, I, love, I love that expression, the PTSD of 2016. <laughs> everybody's so scared to, to like believe what is happening and what the numbers are saying. And um, just the results in 2016, I remember I was on air and pointed up until the very end to a clear, clear Hillary Clinton presidency. And of course, we know how that played out. And today, of course, people are more skeptical of forecasts, very critical of the methods and distrustful of the partisanship behind polling, very doubtful about the accuracy of results. It is ironic, though, that today with so many tools of precision, we have very sophisticated calculations just about everything. And as methodologies become more and more precise, polls are suffering from a pretty serious crisis of confidence. And in the world of COVID, polling is even more challenging. Everything is more challenging. Most of the rules of the game have changed. Early in-person voting, questions of greater or lesser turnout, flaws in the postal system, uh, really social media atmosphere on fire, and difficulties in collecting information in a semi-confined country make these predictions even harder. There's, there's no doubt about that. So before we go to Rob Autry, our our pollster, it's just let, let's do a little history lesson in polling. The the tracking voter preferences is all the way dates back to 1824 when newspapers were crunching numbers in the race between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. It was all about only elites, no no real people were questioned. But the first scientific efforts to provide reliable forecasts was done by George Gallup and Elmore Roper in the FDR years, and polling spread to Europe and France and the UK in the late 30s, and they predicted Winston Churchill's victory. And in the 50s, polling really became all about advertising. You know, people used to poll to figure out how best to sell Coke or how best to sell a pair of socks, and they measured consumer in consumer intent in companies as well as elections. And today, even though methods are much more sophisticated, sampling methodologies have been largely corrected to include most people. Polls are done by the old-fashioned way of telephones. Remember telephones? They used to be this thing that one has at home. But people don't have telephones mm-hmm. at home increasingly these days. And, and that is one of the big, big problems of polls. 
which is you got to call a cell phone that maybe no longer lives in the same place that the cell phone's area code is up. So unfortunately for pollsters, failures in political predictions are now hugely more visible than they were before. And 2016 obviously was no exception. I mean, blunders and upsets in defining favorites is a big historical thing. You remember Thomas Dewey and Harry Truman. You remember much more recently in the UK, the flawed predictions of Brexit's results. But polling, you know, really came to a head in 2016 when they predicted Hillary Clinton's victory. So unreliable or not, the problem with polling is we can't stop reading polling. It just keeps grabbing our attention over and over again. Well, because there's nothing else. And the question, of course, is can we believe the numbers? Pollsters are very um, upbeat and, and think they've covered the glitches of 2016, but they do cover kind, kind of their behinds and make a distinction between reliable and infallible. And the level of uncertainty comes, of course, from not being able to ask everyone and from people lying or changing their minds or just not responding. So what have we learned from the 2016 polling crisis? That not enough, but roughly kind of a self- reflection. Not enough polls were conducted close to the election in key states. That's a big flag for the next couple of weeks. The sampling favored highly educated voters, as it happened in the very beginning, skipped blue collar responders, many who voted for Trump, as we know. And another misquote was now called the shy Trump voter. Those who are not eager to share their preference in a survey, but express support on the ballot, wondering if that's still a thing. Let's have a heart-to-heart with our guest, and we thought it would be only fair to bring in somebody from the opposing party of the projected winner, a Republican. Rob Autry is one of the nation's leading pollsters and research strategists. Before founding Meeting Street, which is his company in 2015, Rob is a partner in one of the nation's most prestigious Republican polling firms where he spent 18 years. He's a pollster and strategist for two presidents, two senators, 16 members of Congress, numerous and countless other statewide and state legislative elected officials. He's also my friend, so I'm really proud to have Rob here, and he, who has managed in countless political campaigns and is somebody who really knows what he's talking about. Rob, welcome to Altamar. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's uh, get right into it. Donald Trump is trailing Joe Biden with only a couple of weeks to go. Are polls reliable? And if so, what are they telling you about the race? Well, let's let's start with a loaded question here. Are polls reliable? The good news is, Peter, we're going to find out here shortly (laughs) on November. Well, it may not be November 4th, but by November 14th, we'll know for sure how reliable the polls are. Um, Listen, I, I kind of start from the idea of, to understand kind of where we are today, it's probably helpful to get a sense of what happened in 2016, right? Because that's the question on everybody's mind. And I would just kind of take everybody back to 2016, heading into election day, Hillary Clinton, if you looked at the real clear politics average of all the national polls on election day, they had Hillary Clinton up 3.3% and she won by 2.1. That was the popular vote, right? So by historical measurements, polling was as accurate or was probably the most accurate it had been since 1936. And that's according to APOR, the, the Trade Association of Public Opinion Researchers, where the challenge was is we don't elect our presidents on popular vote, right? But if, if you look at the national polls, they were extremely accurate in 2016. And most of the state polls 
that I've seen in 2018 were pretty accurate too. So I have faith that where we are today in terms of the national vote, which I think has Biden up 8%, if you look at the real clear politics average, and it's been a very, very stable race to date, I think the polls are accurate. And now, again, we'll find out here, you know, in a few days. In terms of the state of the race, um, with that, I think one of the things that's just been really remarkable about President Trump's numbers is just how little movement and fluidity they are. And if you look at his presidential approval rating, for instance, which is one of the key metrics that we look at in terms of judging the state of play, his numbers have been remarkably stable, more stable than any other president in history, for good and for bad for him. And the bad part is he had no honeymoon, so to speak. When he started, I believe his first presidential approval rating was 43 approve, 52 disapprove. I think the most recent one I saw is he was at 44 or 45% approve, 54 disapprove. So over the course of essentially four years and change, he hasn't really moved in terms of his approval number. The same thing is said with the, the presidential ballot. If you go back and look at that real clear politics average on October 1, 2019, they had the race at 50 Biden, 43 Trump. Uh, the end of September, early October, they had the race at 50 Biden, 43 Trump. <laughs> and to think of all the things the country's gone through, the world's gone through in the course of a year between impeachment, uh, a Senate trial, a pandemic, uh, race riots, uh, protests, demonstrations, all of that in the presidential race is essentially the same as where it was a year ago. So I think it's pretty stable. And, and I think as we kind of look for the remaining few days in the election, uh, it, it's hard to believe there's going to be anything that happens that's really going to change the dynamic between now and election day. What do you see? I mean, if you'd had to rank order the priorities and concerns of voters, and I know that voters is a big word that includes lots of people who don't think alike. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you what do you see as what are Americans worried about, and 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 what do they what do they want? Right. Well they're worried about a lot of things, right? I think what's what's particularly unique about 2020 is you have four really big sort of super disruptive, disruptive sort of events going on. You have a pandemic, <laughs> you have mass protests and, and civil unrest, you have coming out of an economic collapse and, and recessionary fears running high. And you've got intense and uh, intense interest in the election. I mean, one of the interesting things about this that we started seeing in 2019 was record level of interest in the election, and that has only increased. And and you can see this with some of the turnout figures that are popping up these days of folks who are voting by mail, voting early, the long lines, and yet we're still weeks from the election. So this is unique in that rarely do you have sort of big massive things going on in the political environment to impact them. But in terms of issues specifically, the economy uh, and the coronavirus are the two big issues in pretty much every poll. And with that, it, it presents interesting kind of dynamics because on the economy, most voters give Trump a slight edge in terms of how they view who they think would best handle the economy. And when it comes to the pandemic, Biden has a sizable advantage there too. So 
those two issues, at least in our national polling, are pretty much one and two. And in some cases, depending on what's going on in the news, the virus is number one and the pan- economic issues are number two. And sometimes they flip back and forth. But those tend to be the top two issues. When when we listen to, whether you're listening to Fox or to CNN, you hear a lot of demographic breakdowns. You know, you hear people talk about the women's vote, the black vote, the Hispanic vote. Do these categorizations still stand? I mean, I, I you know, Mooney and I were discussing these divides. We, we know the Latino vote is not a monolith. Right, right. You know, is there really a gender gap among all women? Does the rural divide? exist i mean i know i'm asking a lot of questions but help us understand these these almost facile categorizations that people talk about well i will tell you that the demographic breaks have never been more complex than they are now and so you mentioned latinos if you just look at white voters for instance they're certainly not a monolith either um not today the differences between non-college white voters and college educated plus white voters is rather dramatic. You mentioned the gender gap. Is there one? Well, if you just look at sort of, so as I kind of look at this election, I think there are, there are four sort of key groups to keep an eye on as we go through the next couple of weeks and understanding whether college educated voters um, are, are certainly a key one. And, and in the last several last elections, they've been swing voters up until we got to 2018. So for instance, in 2000, Let's go all the way back to 2014. Republicans in the midterms won college-educated voters by three points. In 2016, Democrats won college-educated voters by four points, by four. Two years later, congressional Democrats won college-educated voters by 20 points. And right now, Biden's winning them by 14. So that is a group that has bounced around a little bit, been a little more favorable towards Republicans that it's moved solidly in the Democrat camp. To offset that, what has happened in Trump's popularity, and I think what he has done and changed with the Republican Party is a higher popularity and better numbers with non-college educated whites. Seniors, I think, are a key, key group, right? That's a group that Republicans have won pretty handedly in the past. In 2008, they voted eight points for Republican. In 2012, 12 points. Trump won him by eight, and Biden's winning him by nine in our most recent national poll. White women. So there's always historically been a gender gap of sorts, at least in the last 10 to 15 years. What's changed, I think, over the last four is is that gap has actually become more pronounced among white voters. So the difference between white men and white women is pretty dramatic. And right now, Biden has a slight edge in our most recent national with white women by four points. This is a group that Trump won in 2016 by 12, and Romney won them by 14 in 2012. So white women are are, are sort of another key group that I would kind of keep an eye on. And then the last group would be independents, which are always important, um, certainly in presidential elections, and a group that Trump won by six points and 16 that are now favoring Biden by five. So to your point, are they important? Yes. <laughs> um, and certainly in terms of how campaigns target their message, that's where it comes in, that's where it becomes extremely valuable. And when you look at sort of the key, who the key demographics are, it, it sort of paints a picture of how difficult it is of an election for Trump to win. 
Rob, I wouldn't want to be a pollster this year, especially with the cloud of 2016 and all mm-hmm. of the external factors that that are that are happening that you mentioned. Um, on top of everything, you know, COVID, um, early voting, absentee ballots, the long lines at the voting stations, the fear of voter suppression and intimidation, and a constant disc- discrediting of the voting system of the postal system. How does that factor into the the numbers as you are crunching them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely difficult now, right? Um, I mean, it's from a mechanical standpoint, it changes the way you ask ballot questions, right? Because the first thing you have to ask, particularly these days, is have you already voted? Um, and if so, who? And then it's sort of that, that has to be factored in separately than asking a ballot if the election were held today, because for many voters, the election has been held, has been held for the last three or four weeks. So it is making things certainly more complicated. I think political campaigns have gotten much more sophisticated too, right? We Every day we get readouts of who's voted, what's the demographics of who's voted, where they voted. Um, we know their past voting history so that if you were a reliable Republican primary voter who's voted in the last four mm-hmm. uh, primary elections and you've already casted your ballot, cast your ballot by mail and the staff, Secretary of State has already loaded that in. We know, we know that you voted and And from a sampling perspective, you're not an eligible or likely voter. You're a certain voter. So we can adjust that from who we poll as well. So um, it's become more complicated. I will say that campaigns have gotten much more sophisticated in identifying who those voters are. And it's on both sides. It's not just Republicans, but it, it certainly made things more challenging. And the 30% voting population that already voted, how's that skewing? Mm. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I mean, that is a little bit of the challenge too, because we had, up until this point in the election, we up until this point, up until this election, we've gotten pretty good at understanding who your likely early voters were, and being able to benchmark on how it's played out in other campaigns. Um, North Carolina is a perfect example, where I think already about a quarter of registered voters have already voted, which is record numbers for them, right? So measuring kind of where registered Republicans are versus registered Democrats is interesting, but the comparison isn't as apt as it would have been in 2016 when we could look at previous early votes and realize that historically Democrats vote early and Republicans make up the margins on election day. That's not necessarily the case now because more Republicans are voting early because more voters in general are voting early. So, if you look at the raw numbers, I think they could be a little misleading given what's happened in the past. But here's what we do know. What we do know, and this is based on a ton of polling and basically every public poll I see, I think has confirmed this. Biden voters say they are much more likely to vote by mail, much more likely to vote early than Trump voters are. To give you a comparison on a survey that we did at the end of September, 56% 56% of Biden voters said they were going to mail in or vote by absentee, 56%. 74% of Trump voters said they were going to vote in person. So the real question I think that we can't really answer at this point, because polling is not particularly good at predicting turnout, how many of those Trump voters are going to vote on election day? And what's that going to do to the totals? So. It's one of these things that it's there's just no precedence in terms of polling or political campaigns to understand kind of what the early vote is looking like. But what it is sort of indicating what we saw in 2018 is that 
everybody believes this is going to be record turnout. It certainly looks that way so far. Yeah. A question about battleground states. The, so we kind of all know what they are and what how they're behaving. What is your take? Do you anticipate any surprises at the at the state level? Yeah, I don't know that I. Yes, I. I think there's there's nothing that's not surprising about this election. <laughs> so let's start with that. So I think we would be particularly after 2016. I think we'd all be smart to assume there's going to be some surprises. That said, even when you look at the state polling, there's been a couple of races that have come online as more competitive in the last couple of months. But the playing field has been pretty much set for the last year and a half. So I, I don't know that I anticipate anything popping up that's going to be particularly surprising. I think the race has gotten, for instance, the race has gotten uncomfortably close for the Trump campaign in Iowa and Ohio, states that aren't in the toss-up category or weren't in the toss-up category probably a month or so ago, which are going to be in the toss-up category now. Um, outside of those two, I, yeah, to me, I, I think the ones that I probably will keep, well, listen, we all, talk, we all know the big states here, which are Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. If you look at the Electoral College map, the president has to carry all of the solid Republican states, all of the likely Republican states, any state that leans Republican, which used to include Iowa, Ohio, and Texas. He's got to win all of the toss-up states, and he's got to win some of the states that are currently leaning Democratic. And he's got to win about 22 electoral votes from that. And so he needs a Michigan or a Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or in several combinations of those to sort of make it happen. So as interested as I am in what happens in Georgia, which I think is fascinating, um, and the fact that the president does a rally there, you know, I think he did one on uh, several days ago or a week or so ago. Uh, the fact that he's doing rallies in states like Georgia sort of could be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think at the end of the day, all eyes are going to be on what's happening in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Rob, and you're saying that because you are, it's a, to you, it's a foregone conclusion that Florida is going to vote Trump? No, but if he doesn't, but Florida, to me, Florida has to vote Trump. Otherwise, the math becomes nearly impossible. Right, right. So let me take a step back here, because that's a very good question, Peter. If, if the president doesn't win Florida, North Carolina, or Georgia, by the time we get to the Midwest, then it really doesn't matter. Um, I think the math becomes so incredibly hard for him if he doesn't win that. So the assumption on why I think Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin are important are if this is going to be a competitive race, those previous toss-up states have to go Trump's way. Uh, and if they don't, then the lean states, the lean Democrat states probably don't matter as much. And just to be uh, for our listeners, Florida is a state that has a lot of experience with mail-in voting, and they'll they'll be reporting that uh, probably on election night, right? right? So if we'll we'll know if there is a race to continue watching on election night, even though we'll probably won't know Pennsylvania's numbers till a day or two after the election is is that correct that's right so let me let me switch um as we as we close out i would just want your thoughts on just polling in general and where not so much the business but the science is going and i guess one of the questions that people keep asking is why are some polls 
clearly more favorable to Republicans and other polls, clearly more favorable to Democrats. What's what's the difference? I mean, is there are people really trying to tweak these on purpose or is there a difference in the methodology? I mean, I'm just trying to explain why there's so consistent differences in polling if you look it up. Well, I think the easy answer to your question, Peter, is that most of the public polls that are released or most of the polls that are released or in the public are done so for a particular reason, right? Our company, for instance, over the course of an election cycle, will poll, will conduct somewhere between 400 to 500 surveys. Rough guess, I'm guessing maybe four to seven or eight of them are publicly released. The vast majority are not. And it's the same with other Republican pollsters and, and many of the Democrat pollsters that I know. So let's start with the the idea that an overwhelming majority of campaign polls never see the light of the day when it comes to public to the public eyes. Those that are released generally are released for a reason. They are released to either raise money to convince skeptical donors that they need to pay attention to this race, perhaps to convince to defy conventional wisdom that the race is not competitive and the campaign wants to make it such. And so I'm very, very, very skeptical whenever I see a publicly released poll for a campaign. So let's start with that. Most of the Democrat pollsters that I talk to after the election, and when we trade notes, um, we find there's a, there's a lot more agreement of where races are. So I don't think Democrats or Republican pollsters do things dramatically different. Um, we have different takes on what we think the data means for sure and how we apply those those data points to strategy. But I found that there's remarkable similarities in terms of what the polling looks like on the Democrat side and what it, it looks like on the Republican side in competitive seats. And I guess a, sec- a second question is, with all this early voting, are we uh, are these polls influencing voters in ways that they haven't influenced bef- voters before? I mean, you and I have done elections overseas in countries which don't allow any publishing of polling in the last right. week or so. And right. uh, I, I just wonder, where, where, where do you stand on that? Yeah. So I think we actually did a, for a private client, a study on the value of polling and how the public perceives polling. And in this study, which was done last year, Roughly 80% of voters said they were fascinated and interested by polling and they wanted to hear more about it in the media. About 25% actually believed it, <laughs> the results. And so I think people kind of want to get a sense of how races are playing out. It, it's, it is as, as it is of sort of like we like to know where the score is on occasion, but I think does it influence people's vote? I have not seen any evidence to ever suggest that's the case. And they're undoubtedly I will get a call every other week, particularly this time of year from a candidate or client who wants to do a poll to release it to the local media to show that they're going to win to get their supporters to the polls. And I simply have to tell them it is a waste of your money to do so. There is no evidence to suggest polling impacts votes uh, one way or the other, or even impacts turnout. I wish I could say the opposite as a pollster, but that is that is what we know to be true. Um, a couple of quick last minute, last questions. Um, Rob, can you, with the information you have today, predict a Biden victory? Can I? Um, 
I could predict one. I, <laughs> Muni, I could predict one. I think all the data sort of shows that it's going to be hard for Trump to make up the ground. But here's what I will say. I think the Trump vote, I do think when you look at the polls right now, and we've seen this in all of the competitive congressional races we're doing, Trump's actual vote against Biden is lower than his job approval numbers, which seems to indicate to me that he may be a little bit underreporting some of the national polls. So if you look at the national, the real clear politics average, which I think he's sitting at 42 and change right now, and it's been, it's been pretty consistent. His job approval range is about 45. I think at the end of the day, you could argue that, and I would argue that his general election number is going to move up a couple points. I can't, um, one of the more stable things that we know from historical polling is that when presidents run for re-election, their job approval number is almost a perfect predictor of where their vote's going to be on election day. And the only cases where that's not happened is when there's been a third party candidate that gets significant vote. And we're not seeing that in this election. I'm smuggling a last question. You think the Democrats will take the Senate and then we'll call it a day? I think it's going to be very hard for Republicans to hold on to the Senate, given the current dynamics. Rob Autry, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar today. We know you're a busy man these days, so we're going to let you go. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, Peter, this was kind of a different episode than the ones that we do, but I I can't help but go back to our main question is what role does America play or the U.S. play in the world? And will that even matter who wins? Because whoever wins, even if it's Joe Biden with all of his talk about multilateralism and restoring relationships is going to be so consumed by domestic stuff that really nothing is going to change. I I think there are going to be differences in terms of foreign policy, and then there are not. I think there's certainly, you know, in some of the basic things of foreign policy, America under a Biden administration will become, again, a nation that wants to lead in multilateral forum. It wants to rejoin the Paris Accord. It will uh, reconsider the United Nations an important forum. It will uh, be a a leader in uh, also regional issues with Latin America and in trying to help broker positive and sometimes not so positive conclusions around the world. But I also feel like America is in such stasis and in such division that 85% of America's attention will be inward. There's so much to fix. There's so many problems. There's so much division. And I hope that Biden will be a president who will make bold moves to fix these things, because I think trying to do this under the usual ages of what has been just tweaking around the edges to improve things is not working. And so, you know, my hope and I believe that it is possible that Biden can be a revolutionary president. Oof, my expectations are lower. I would be happy with a change in tone, even if the substance doesn't change uh, dramatically. So with that, thank you for joining us on All Tomorrow. See you next time. <laughs>